Jesus, it's packed. Yeah, go down the back there, so. Welcome to the Snog with Richie and Lavin. Hello, hello, and welcome. This is a new podcast from the west coast of Ireland, uh, where we invite interesting people uh, into the Snog and um, find out a little bit more about their lives. My name is Richard Loftus. And I'm Lavin. Jesus, lovely day. It's gorgeous. We're here in the beautiful uh, Berlin Lowlands at my house, at my parents' house. Uh, right, perched right on the uh, corner of Galway Bay. Per- perched right, uh, I would say, the, the, the mouth of Canvara Bay. Yeah. You can see Douris across the way and the Berlin Hills. And it's the first nice day we've had in, Jesus, fucking months, I'd say. Yeah, what you call it? It's great actually to get the ball finally rolling on this. Like it is, yeah. COVID's been uh, <laughs> keeping one or one of us out of out of commission each. You know, the past couple of times we've been trying to do this for how many months? Maybe two months now. Oh, a while. It's been a while. I've had what COVID probably once anyway since we last attempted. This. Yeah, and it's probably more to do with our stubbornness, the fact that we actually wanted to interview people you know face to face rather than over zoom or something exactly like that. yeah and um you know just in the uh like drinking on you know when the whole zoom thing you're drinking alone and it just doesn't work yeah you know so it's definitely this is a lot better having people in the room with you you know yeah so you know the the conversation is a bit more you know not as stilted yeah exactly <laughs> so we're going to get a few people um kind of based in around the west of ireland or might hail from the west of ireland because um, that's where we're based and that's what we're passionate about that's it and uh, as it goes forward we'll get different people in um, more interesting people than this guy and who is this guy this is Eamon Healy hello Eamon hi lads thanks for having me on and uh, Eamon is a genealogist and a local historian who uh, currently works for um, Ancestry.com yeah I mean I'm working for Ancestry for the last six years but I suppose the, the family history and local history thing goes back probably you know since i was a young lad i'd say seven eight years old and started looking at the genealogy thing probably 10 15 years ago um just so we uh, place ourselves in the world um we're in galway on the west coast of ireland and eamon you're originally from uh, south galway yeah yeah i'm from a small parish called beha so you know six seven miles outside of the town of gort um so i would have went to school with, with lavin yeah um, so that's where I grew up. That's where I was born and reared. Um, so yes, yeah, so I've been there. Went to school there. Um, one of the few claims to fame for Beha is uh, Michael Cusick of GAA fame. He used to teach in the the national school there back in the eighteen sixties. Fine beard on that lad. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. A lot more of those kind of Michael Cusick beards rocking around during the last two years of COVID lockdowns. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I went to school there. That's uh, uh, Michael Cusick of Cusick Park in Ennis as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, he's from Karen and Clare, so just, okay, just yeah. across the burn, actually, from here, we're, we're looking out across the bay. Um, so he used to teach in the school there, and the rumour goes as well that it was a... Uh, uh, I'm probably getting into the history, obviously, straight away. Yeah, yeah, go for it. The, ru- the rumour goes that the, the first slither ever made for uh, a hurling game with the GA rules was a man from Gort, so Michael Cusick was... Was it neon yellow? It wasn't neon yellow. No, no, no. I know. I don't think it was even white. I'd imagine. Um, I think oh, I want like probably like a dark brown. I'd say. Yeah, some kind of I'd say old old fashioned leather with turf inside. I think I don't know exactly turf what it was made class. from. 
Yeah, yeah. So a man called Ned Treston, for any of those who are wondering what his name was. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Ned what? Treston. Treston. Yeah. Is not, there many Trestons in Gort? No, no, no. Not very common. I'm sure there's probably a few knocking about, but none that I would know personally. Yeah, so. it doesn't sound like a really uh, no, Irish name. No, it doesn't, really, does no. It? I mean, it's something that I haven't looked into yet. One of the few surnames of the area that I haven't yeah. looked into. But yeah, so I was in, that's where, that's where I'm from. Uh, another thing there would be La Coutre, La Coutre Castle. Uh, some some people might know that. There was a music festival there for a while as well. So I grew up from there, about a mile and a half from the Terre border. Okay. But quite firmly Galway. I'm, yeah, not, yeah. I'm not Clare. Uh, my mother's from Clare. And my grandparents and my dad's side, one of them is from Clare, but definitely Galway through and through. Definitely Galway. Yeah. Like all of us. Here, sitting here. Yeah, yeah. You, you can say that if you want, yeah. but uh, I don't think so. You can check the colours on my back there now. Yeah. There. But, um, Christmas. I thought that was for Christmas. It's for Christmas. Yeah. May was for every time of the year, Lavin. You uh. know? Every day is Christmas and May. It's not you for Sam, though. <laughs> this is our year, you know? Yeah, this is yeah. our year. <laughs> but um, so you went to primary school in, uh, in Beha. Yeah, yeah. So the, the, the national school I went to, there's two in the parish, uh, La Coutre National School. And then. I suppose went on from there to Gort Secondary School. Um, so I was there for about two or three years before I met Lavin. Yeah. Um, but yeah, well, like I was supposed to backtrack. I always had an interest in the, the history thing, um, primarily because the, the, there was a neighbor next door that lived next to us. So to put it in context, like Beha is very rural parish, uh, you know, the typical GA church or pub is the three outlets for any young lad in the yeah, area. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't much good at hurling I was a bit chubby as a child and I had a bit of a height advantage but I didn't have the temperament to go with that so that ruled out the hurling you were tall? I was a tallish yeah tallish hmm. it was the only it was the only attribute that I could contribute to the team That's yeah I was the tallest guy in, in sixth class you were? yeah and then the, the growth stopped that's yeah. something we all yeah. share yeah, yeah. I, was I, was I, I was always the, same. the tallest lad as I was well. the same I think I was probably the tallest or one of the tallest in, in sixth class first year until the, the growth spurt hit everybody else. Yeah. yeah. Um, I wouldn't be very religious, so the church wasn't really a thing. And um, I suppose the pub, was obviously only as a young lad, you don't really get to make those decisions yourself, but dad wouldn't necessarily have been a big drinker. So that left history in talking to the older folk in the parish. Yeah. Um, and I was blessed in some ways that Mick, uh, Mick Holleran lived next door. He was an old bachelor farmer. He hadn't any family around, so used to call on us to help him out with the farm and once he'd have those chores done he'd still sit with them and listen to his stories so he's the kind of man that would sit, sit down and have his dinner at 10 o'clock in the morning wow yeah he'd be up fairly early he'd so. be up at 4 in the morning yeah or yeah, yeah, yeah he'd have his dinner at 10am yeah yeah walk in at 10 o'clock like lunch dinner or dinner dinner oh kind of a dinner dinner like bacon and cabbage with spuds 10am like how old fellas would eat their dinner in the middle of the day kind of thing yeah okay yeah yeah so Still, though, that's very early. Yeah, extremely early. And there was another bachelor that used to live about a mile or two away. He used to come and he was, I suppose, a little bit more mobile than Mick was. Uh, Mick was a big man, you know, I don't know exactly, but probably close on 20 stone. Jeez. Shovels for hands and a temperament to go with it as well. <laughs> um, but yeah, he used to sit down, listen to the radio, and he was a kind of a meeting spot for all the old farmers in the area. Uh, and and children our age yeah. because you get away with a lot more because of course so he didn't parents have, played at night and all that exactly kind of thing, yeah, yeah. twenty five twenty five a lot of arguments over that uh, teams people not knowing how to to play with their partner so listening to Mick's stories is kind of what got me into the history thing and stemmed from that really to be honest uh, 
I know a few stories of them. Yeah. There's two in particular that I love. Right. Um, There's a lot of stories about them, in fairness. Uh, one involves you taking a lush of water. Yeah, yeah that, was a, <laughs> that was a funny one, all right? Um, my mother wasn't very happy when that happened, but basically... Uh, he had a you know his house is fairly basic um, yeah. and he had a range um that was fired off fuel like uh, that you'd burn so you know he'd always have turf so every summer he would buy buy in you know three or four tons of turf but the problem was he didn't really have a place that was easy access on the boring that we live on so what would happen was he would order in this load of turf never have an exact day that the turf would come the turf would come and dump the three or four tons or whatever it was of turf on on the road and make it the first house on the road. There's there's 10 houses on the road in total. Mm. We'd be the second. So he'd come down in a panic saying, we need you to come down to throw in the turf so the people could actually use the road. Yeah, of course. Um, on this particular day, I don't know, I was maybe, I was just coming into my teenage years, maybe 12, 13, 14, around that age. Maybe even a little bit younger, I can't remember exactly. But... It was a it was a scorcher of a day, and I don't know if you've had the pleasure of throwing in turf, but when 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 it's a scorcher of a day and there's no wind or nothing, the turf dust goes everywhere, in the top of your nostrils, in the back of your throat, kind of like dust, kind of shite. Yeah, it? yeah, just like like it almost gets kind of mucusy. Um, oh, and find it hard to breathe if you're not careful. So, after about an hour throwing in a little bit of this turf, I asked him, "Can I go in and get a, a swig of water or Seven Up from from his dresser?" So he had one of those old style dressers in 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 the house. Yeah, and you knew where he kept the Seven Up. Oh, I knew where everything was because, <laughs> of course, at this stage he was using the Zimmer frame, so he. Oh right, it yeah. Be, it would be too much to be asking had he, him to get um, you a drink. Had he tennis balls on the bottom? Tennis balls on the he did actually. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> did, did. So you wouldn't. Why hear do him. they do that? You, Why don't they just make them uh, with no. something? Well, I think he did it so you wouldn't hear him coming. You know, uh, he'd course, surprise yeah. you. But uh, the long story short, he, uh, he he said, go on in there, you know where it is. So I went in, grabbed the first bottle of 7-Up that I could find and uh, swung it back. Didn't come for air until I'd taken a good three or four gulps of it and uh, put the bottle back down and it hit me fairly strong. I didn't know oh. what was going on. <laughs> and uh, turned out it wasn't 7-Up. So I went in and went back out and told him, I said, look. I think your seven up has gone off. And he said, Oh Jesus Christ. He said, which bottle did you take? And I said, the one on the left, the left hand drawer. And he said, no, that's not fucking seven up. He said, it's putching. And he got, he got mad then that I had drank his putching. It, yeah, was, yeah. it wasn't, it wasn't the fact that I had, you know, a 12, 13 year old. Yeah. I'd just taken a big swig of it. Like, you know, and sure from the rest of the evening on, I didn't throw any turf in the right spot because I was half cut. Like, you know, but Is I that think the first time I ever got lashed. I would probably it's the first one I can remember yeah um, and I was I don't even think I, I realised I was drunk it was just I felt very funny and weird yeah you know um, but of course he he, he kind of swore me to secrecy uh, which I'm, I'm breaking that swear now <laughs> um, because I think he was afraid of my mother finding out so of course yeah but he was very much that kind of character you know because he didn't have kids of his own I don't think he had the same boundaries as a parent would have yeah so his mentality was almost like if you're old enough to lift a chainsaw you're old enough to use one yeah so I would have learned how to use a chainsaw or like driving cars and tractors like every I'm sure every other lad in the rural areas yeah. would have had a neighbour like that um, but he was definitely a mine of information to go along with that um, but that's what I, kind of how that generation grew up really, yeah isn't it? yeah yeah big time my, my uh, mother came from Kilkenny and uh, my my uncle now he would have been a, a bachelor, but like he, th- there was 
there was no fridge in the house it was a cool box from probably the, the 50s mm. you know he didn't have ru- uh, running water for a while there was water um, collected in a barrel out the back of the house yeah. you know the, um, there was no toilet in the house it was outside you know so it was it was hands on yeah very much so and I, and I think there was a, a great understanding as well of of the surrounding areas I mean not just I mean you can say somebody the farmer but I think it was more than that he had an understanding of the, the landscape and, and the animals he knew them really well yeah. they, were, they weren't just his like they weren't just his cattle you know um, it was very much a living landscape um, did he name them no no he didn't but he had names in all the fields um, yeah each field would have had a name name the field don't name the cattle yeah yeah now did he any, have any dogs at all he did did he, he did. name them he had a dog called skippy yeah okay skippy. Um, and skippy because i remember old fellas not naming dogs around here yeah that was fucking hilarious to oh, me oh really yeah. like what's the name <laughs> that's that's nuts no yeah, no it's actually skippy was it's a very ironic name because skippy. poor old skippy didn't end so well because i think he loved <laughs> skippy too much so, oh right so. no not in that way but in terms of he probably should have had Skippy put down long before he died oh right okay, okay so okay. Skippy ended up being down to his last two legs skipping oh, oh <laughs> skipping Lord. around yeah 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 but no Skippy was uh, was the bane of my life as a young lad because he was your typical border collie that was very aggressive later in life when he wasn't getting the run out full of energy so we'd have to avoid him at all costs which is Hard to do when your next door neighbor is about 20 meters away. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, that's Skippy. I haven't thought about Skippy in a long time. <laughs> so that kind of um, started off your interest in kind of local history and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, was that a... <laughs> the bush kangaroo. Um, <laughs> but uh, then when you, you did secondary school in Gort then up the road. Yeah. Um did that expand on then on your interest then? In, in Would history? you believe it? It actually had the opposite effect. Um, I think a lot of it stems from Lavin and his crew with the music and and I suppose different outlets and art and that kind of thing. Um, I would have had an interest in history, but it didn't necessarily go the whole way through. So, for example, I didn't do history in school. It was one of the subjects that really I, yeah. you no, didn't I didn't do history. No, in so school I, d- I did it in junior cert because it was a core subject, but yeah. I never picked it for leaving because what? it clashed with art. Um, I did history and leaving, and I did art as well. Or maybe it was what else did I do? I can't remember physics or something. There was there was did a, did history. Yeah, I didn't didn't do, fucking really do much in history. Yeah, yeah, I didn't do history at all. That's funny, no. Yeah. Did you I, do classical studies? No. You weren't in the classical I studies either. I wasn't. No. <laughs> the classical studies in secondary school. No. Yeah. I no, I did it on Saturdays. It was like a extracurricular oh. thing. You had yeah. the option of bringing in a teacher. But it was great crack because you just hang out with your friends. And talk about you did extracurricular work <laughs> yeah wow that blows my mind <laughs> i know yeah believe it or not he was coming in of a saturday doing his work i can't believe it did it either but it was kind of a way to get out of i don't know to hang out with your buddies yeah yeah and we'd eat like, and there was a good, there was a good, i remember from that we would go down to this is it what's that is it a centra down there we were allowed to go down to eat our lunch food lunch during the day I think it's the Centra in Gort. The one halfway down the town the by the railway tracks. Next to Aldi? Yeah, yeah rail tracks. Yeah, Centra, yeah. So I remember one time I went in there and got uh, a hot chicken roll with um, black pudding on it. It was fantastic. It was around the same time that the cream egg was out. So I got a cream egg as well. And I was like, jeez, I wonder. I fucking wonder. So I took out the black pudding and I dipped it in the cream egg. No, that's disgusting. And at that, it was amazing. I haven't done it since. 
But I remember saying, lads, you got to try this. I think it's one of those this. nostalgia things kicking in there. Yeah, that I think definitely. Yeah. I don't well, think that sounds I, nice. I, we'll I try might, it later. Try it later I'm, when I'm, we go into I town. think I'm going to try it. Yeah. Well, I do love those two ingredients separately, but I don't know what I mix them. Yeah. You know? it's, it's, it's worth it. Or would you be one of those people, what is it, chips and ice cream? I'm not, no, I'm not a chips yeah, and ice cream. Ice cream. Oh, I haven't so heard that. I think my girlfriend was on a little before. I, if it was a strawberry milkshake, maybe. I think the weirdest thing I've had that's somewhat similar to that is uh, milk and Coke mixed together slightly. What? Like a float. Yeah. It was kind of weird. I think it happened by accident. I remember because... Oh, f- yeah, float. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know me with the milk and tea. Uh-huh. Um, but milk, uh, I don't know. I had maybe a mouthful of milk left in the glass and just poured some Coke in without realizing it. Tastes really nice. So, really? Uh, yeah. Ooh. Wow. Yeah. Like bananas? How do you mean like bananas? <laughs> I don't, well, <laughs> <laughs> bananas well, are nice, is it? Uh, a couple like like a decade ago, we were drinking Buckfast and uh, mixing milk with that. Uh, Jamie Jamie Stack and Daly and I think Mulligan were calling it Blimfast. Blimfast for some reason. Something like Slimfast, maybe. But it tasted it? like bananas. Buckfast and milk mixed together. It was very strange. That's interesting. I actually seen two bottles of Buckfast on the on my walk down to get the train to come down. To really? Today. Yeah. In, yeah. In, in, in Dublin? Dublin? Yeah, yeah. I was very surprised. Hmm. Yeah. Why is it not popular in Dublin? I haven't seen anybody only Galway lads drinking Buckfast in Dublin. Really? Yeah. yeah. Galway is, for Ireland anyway, the big Buckfast place. And then I think it's Glasgow is the is bigger again. Yeah, abroad, yeah. But they drink abroad, abroad, But they drink. They drink the, the green <laughs> bottles, you know. Or the EU even. The, the old northern bottles, they're different. Oh, the green bottles, yeah. yeah. Green bottles, yeah. They're they're odd. Yeah, uh, some people prefer them. Yeah, they do. But they're a little more syrupy or something. Yeah, it's a long time since I drank a bottle of Buckfast. Is it? I, it's probably been about time. three months for me. It's probably been about two years for me. Yeah. I have a Buckfast tattoo on my leg. So, that's neither here nor there, I guess. <laughs> Less said about that, the better, man. I also have nut hot tattoo on my leg. <laughs> yeah, that's true. The, the, the but, Chinese, the yeah. shitty Chinese restaurant in Put Galway. Put in context, actually, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a terrible Chinese restaurant in Galway. Well, sorry, it's not terrible. It's lovely. It is. It's not bad. Yeah. Lovely chicken balls that you get out of there. Eamon doesn't like chicken balls. Uh, I don't mind chicken balls, but I don't, I don't like chicken balls wrapped in that really thick batter. Well, this is very thick, lovely uh, batter. Yeah, I wouldn't like it then. Um, and I just decided one day to tattoo nut hot on my leg. What age were you when you did that? This was uh, probably about eight or nine months ago. <laughs> and I'm 32 now. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I, was I there for that one? No, wow. I was there for the touch up. Was he? No, I, I was. The, the the boys all got like tattoo <laughs> needles and ink and stuff, and they were like, "Oh, we love to get tattooed." And I was like, "All right, I'll fucking tattoo you. What do you want?" And no one could think of what they wanted, so I was like, "Well, I'll just tattoo myself first. So, and I was like, "What do I want?" And I was like, "I'll just tattoo nut hot on for the crack." <laughs> what age did you meet first, actually? I have, I don't remember. A lot of people, a lot of people we knew. I think one of the first things he said to me was very uh, unique, to say the least. And he came up to me and told yeah, me, "I don't remember this at all." Yeah, he came up to me and told me that the the grease from my nose would be fantastic for playing guitar with. Um, <laughs> I don't know where that came out of. Wow, which I didn't know to be complimented or insulted by, <laughs> um, but I didn't take it as an insult. So we got chatting, and I think. That's how I got into uh, lab and had a, had, and a few more. I were, 
were playing music and one of my best friends Shane uh, played the bass and next thing you know there was a band formed and we yeah. were pretty much from that point forward joined at the hip I think all of us um, so that's how I got to know him yeah. Gort's kind of a strange place uh, especially for someone looking in because it's quite a it's a country town uh, but it's kind of bohemian because you have the um, you know the influence of <laughs> you know, but like I've there's never, a, right. I've uh, never heard Gorb described as bohemian before. <laughs> Maybe right. It. Well, there's like uh, there's it's a lot a, of hippies a, around. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's a, you know, it's a, Gorb was a nut house when uh, we were in it. Yeah, yeah. And and it's funny that you say Gort that. school. Yeah, you know. But but you see, a lot of that is because of the hinterland that is that's it's more huge. of the influence. Really, you know, I suppose it's, yeah. it's absolutely huge. It goes from New Quay over across in the Burnside all the way down to Crusheen and Clare. Mm. Up as far as Kilinena on the Tuller Road. The Burn Lowlands. Um, I'm going to move on that path. That <laughs> um, yeah, so it goes all the way over then like towards Loch and up as far as Clarence Bridge. So it's huge, huge area. Yeah, it's massive. Um, so, you know, within that then you get lots of different people. So yeah. like what you're saying there, you have what we would call hippies, I suppose, in different settlements and around the place. Then you'd have your typical guys that were in their, their GA mindset or farmers and... Kinvara would be, I would say, Kinvara is fairly bohemian in yeah. terms of a lot of like lot of townies as well. Yeah, and you had a, you know Brazilians, so a huge influx of Brazilians when mm. we were in school. Yeah, I think that started when we were in school. Yeah, Brazilians well, it, started, well, it, it started literally when I came into transition year. Yeah, because yeah, I remember that. Yeah, because transition year was like the first time they had to try and integrate the Brazilians that had no English mm-hmm. into the school. All right, which was a huge problem because the school didn't have resources for language teachers. So a very Irish solution. They decided to pair up um, one Brazilian with one Irish student during transition year. <laughs> and I was paired up with uh, uh, Macon. Um, and I'm quite quite proud that he's actually, he worked as the Tau translator for a long time afterwards. Really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's great. But I don't think it's down to me, to be honest, but I'll, I'll, I'll claim that. You claim. know, you take that. <laughs> so, I mean, I became semi-fluent in like really bad language in Portuguese. Portuguese. Um, but he became fluent in English. Um, he was kind of he had, he had some words coming into that. But even from a, a teenage boy perspective, you know, having these very beautiful Brazilian ladies coming in. I mean, to, I always say this when somebody asks me where I'm from. I talk about Gort, and most people have heard of Gort for two reasons: the battered Mars bars in uh, kettle of fish. The uh, kettle of fish was a um, a chipper. Was a chipper that is long since. Oh, it's gone, is it? uh, it's gone. Yeah. yeah, and then I think they moved into Galway City for a while. They had, yeah. yeah, they had battered Mars bars. Yeah, and then the second two one day. Yeah, they were pretty tasty now. Yeah, and then the second reason was the influx of Brazilians. Why did uh, what was what was the draw for? It was a meat factory, meat factory ah, in the town, okay. and uh, most of the Brazilians in Goa come from a town called Anápolis in Brazil. Okay, um, and I think the the meat factory in in Gorch was either getting meat from Brazil or they had partnered with some meat plant out there and. Slowly but surely, lots of people came over, yeah. and, and I'd say within a eighteen-month period, I'd say one of every two people in the town was Brazilian. And they stayed then, though, as well. There's a, a lot of people. Yeah, there's yeah, a community did. there now. Absolutely, like, yeah. Yeah. absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, I think they've st- they've spread out a lot more since, but I mean, we're talking, I don't know, two thousand five, two thousand four, ish. Yeah. And at that time, it was like something you'd see in a movie, where you'd have farmers coming up to the town square at seven o'clock in the morning. And the place would be full of Brazilian laborers. Yeah, they'd pull up in their jeep. Brazilian would hop in. No way. And yeah. they'd go off and do farm work for the for the for the day, kind of like what you see in a movie now with uh, 
I suppose Mexican laborers in America. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was exactly the same. It was nuts. Um, but it was harder then to get a to get a job as a as a as a young lad then you know. But of course, I mean, yeah. That that makes sense too. Yeah. But yeah, so my dad worked in the meat factory actually. So I think I got to know more Brazilians through him and his yeah. colleagues as well. What did your dad do in the meat factory? What was his uh, job description? So uh, my 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 dad's uh, exact job description was a, a boner. A boner. Um, he was a meat boner. Yeah. So he boned out the meat. <laughs> you 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 always take joy from that. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, he used to bone out the bones basically from sides. You get a, a side of beef, like a half a cow, and basically turn that into what you see in a Tesco Tesco package. Yeah. So yeah, very strenuous, arduous labor. Absolutely. Where is the meat factory in Gort? Uh, it's gone. It's closed up now. Um, it's down on the the Galway end of the town. Um, so near Little. I don't know if you know oh, the Little. Okay, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. actually on that road. It was there. Yeah. So Jeez, the, I don't remember that at all. So the road to Little. If you keep going past Little, go back oh, another yeah, hundred okay. meters on the left. It's just the factory. So past the bottle bank. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the factory's still there, but it's closed down. I mean, right. there was a fire there a few years ago as well. Oh, I think I remember that. I think I remember some. But it was some closed, talk about it was that, closed yeah. down before that or around that time. So. Hmm. Yeah, it's gone. As far as I know, I mean, somebody might correct me on that, but my dad hasn't worked there for a long time, so yeah. he's one of the last Irish lads to to work there as well. I think he was one of the last five. Really? Wow. Yeah. yeah. And then you moved into Galway uh, for college. Yeah. So yeah, I moved into Galway straight after the leaving search. Uh, lived in a house with six other fellas from Gort. <laughs> yeah, Is this the Jaw? That was the Jaw. Yeah. Um, in Newcastle. Um. The name of the house is the Jaw. Why was it called the Jaw? Why was I it actually don't the know. Yeah, I don't it, know. It I might have know. just been. It's just one of those childish nicknames that stuck for some reason. We gave nicknames to a lot of things, but they they were very non-sequitur nicknames. Yeah. You know, like there was no reason behind most of them. Yeah. So what did you study then? Was that did you move back to in towards? Um, <laughs> no, no. Again, or? history. Like, yeah, I suppose the theme there, the history thing, kind of. I kind of moved away from that um, and even more so actually when I went into Galway because I stopped coming home every weekend yeah. um, and I got kind of used to the city life um, I was doing I went into I went in and did arts um, with the intention of potentially coming out to do national school teaching so for the first year in arts so I did four subjects in the first year I did uh, English Celtic civilization uh, Irish and classical civilization with the intention of keeping on English and Irish to my degree level. Yeah. Because for those that are listening that don't know, after the first year, or at least when I was there, you could only pick two to, to carry on to finish your degree. Um, And then I kind of got a bit disillusioned with the way the Irish was taught because at the time I was fairly fluent um, and it was very basic. It was actually, I mean, of course, the entire lectures were in Irish and there was an awful lot of focus on grammar, which okay. I didn't really enjoy. But then the oral at the very end of the year was you know kind of where most people would be at with junior cert level Irish which yeah. I was very annoyed with um, so I had a very knee, knee-jerk reaction to that and I decided I would stay with Celtic civilization and English um, didn't really think about the, the practical consequences of that yeah but kept that up anyway and, and, and continued that on I met some great people through that but it was a lot harder to find any job out of that and I suppose fast forward on to 2010, finished that, and of course the country was in tatters at that stage. The recession had done its, done its damage to the first wave of college graduates, and I was coming out in the second wave, and 
most of my friends had already left, emigrated, gone to New Zealand, Canada. Who went to New Zealand? Uh, a lot of lads I was in college with. Oh, just like okay, okay. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So I didn't go to college with them if you. So. Yeah, so we we yeah you had gone back to the states. I in was the in meantime. the states at that point. Yeah. Yeah, so we had we had actually hadn't seen each other a lot actually during that three years. No, not at all. I'd say maybe twice, three times. Maybe maybe yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was going off doing my own thing with all these notions in my head. Um, but yeah, long story short, came out of Galway, was living there. Relationship I was in at the time didn't work out, so I moved home. To, to Galway sorry to South Galway to Beha yeah. again yeah Beha and that was that was tough I'm not going to lie it was it was a big big step down in, in a lot of ways and in the meantime Mick that had left a lasting legacy on me earlier in life had, had actually got dementia at that stage and oh god was close to he ended up dying not long after I got home so there wasn't a whole outlet there and of course I'm one of the very few in the rural area that doesn't drive um, so I don't have a car I, I know how to drive but I have no license So you know how to drive? yeah we'll yeah. stick you in the car later no no well I mean you've an automatic anyway so <laughs> a, a monkey could drive that <laughs> well at least I'm driving a car that's true that's true um, but yeah so that was that was tough um, so then I had to keep my mind busy so I started looking to see what I could do. And again, the, the national school thing was something I was holding on to. So I went down to the, the national school that I attended as a child and asked them, did they need any help with remedial teaching? Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, and the headmaster there was, was really accommodating and helped me through the whole guard of vetting and process and all of that. So he basically gave me a class of uh, 10 kids um, that needed extra help. Um, on my own which was which was nice um so i was helping them out for about six months or so and decided then the teaching wasn't for me as a result of that um i didn't have the patience to be working with kids uh, i mean it was very rewarding and really you know you could see the difference that you were making but i i think maybe later <laughs> i think maybe later i could have done something better uh and on the topic of your family history there's an island out here. Don't you have uh, relatives from that? We, we're looking at an island here. We're in the conservatory, my parents' house, and uh, there's an island here, Island Eddie. Yeah, so like that kind of area, um, which kind of surprised me because most of, like I said there earlier on, my mother's from Ennis, and my father's from my like all of my Healy line are from Beha, all the way back to at least the 1780s, as far as I can go. Um. So there wasn't a whole lot of new blood from different areas, but yeah. I was surprised to see my great grandmother. Um, her surname was Ferdham. It's a very rare Irish surname. Yeah. So it's F O R D H A A M, H A M. Um, and when I started looking into to see where she was from, she was from, she used to, like everybody in the family used to say she was from Ballandarian, but she's technically from Killinarn. Yeah. Uh, townland, with, like for those that don't know, borders the sea. Um. When I started looking into her family, they were boat builders or carpenters. Okay. Um, and then one set of the family settled on Island Eddie. Yeah. And then because, the again, the surname is so rare. So when I say rare, there was only seven families that I could find in the 1850s that had this particular That's spelling. That's mad, isn't it? Um, one of them was in, uh, oh, the, the name of it now is going to escape me. I'm going to say Gromna Island. Okay. On Connemara side. Yeah. And the other family was in Mycullen. Uh, around Duke Gerard as well yeah and I always thought it was very funny that they were all concentrated in Galway mm-hmm. but when I started to look into it more by using you know lots of records with baptisms you know for example the family in Connemara 
they had a child baptized in Kinvara. One of the Kinvara family had a child baptized in, in Letramore. Yeah. Out in Connemara. So obviously they were using the sea a lot. Yeah, that sounds and I like right. to think, I suppose the romantic in me likes to think that they used to build boats and sail them out to, pr- to pr- potential buyers maybe, I don't know, or there was just that interconnectedness across the bay, which I, I mean still persists to this day, even yeah. with things like the Crinuna Mods and other kind of festivals like that. Yeah. There was long ties there. So yeah, so that's that's my link to this part of the world, uh, my claim to fame. Um. So yeah, so that's the genealogy of like relating to here, but I, I, again, most of it would be South Galway, Clare, West Clare. Um, I'm trying to think now what else I wanted to say there. I had another story there. I was gonna, I, I'll keep talking anyway before. I another story of what now? I'm trying to think. There was another story I wanted to say about the family. Um, no, actually, I, I remember it now. Sorry. So you, you, had, I had mentioned about the the blog post. So the first thing that got going on that was there was two bro- two brothers in the parish that were killed very, fairly brutally and um, the Lucknan brothers so it was the first blog post I had done and uh, so basically you're talking and before you did that blog post was there much uh, discussion on the Lucknan brothers I it would have been a bit like I mean yeah. I, I think the thing with Lucknan brothers I mean again for, for those that might know the, the history I'm talking about now I'm talking about the, the revolutionary 1916 to 1922 so you straight away from uh, your your family history here. We're talking yeah, about something completely different. away from yeah. mine. Yeah, completely away from mine. Um, same area. Same Generally area. Though. Yeah, it's not like the same parish as, as where I'm from. But this particular atrocity, I mean, it's, it's replicated around the country where the Black and Tans come and abduct, you know, local IRA or Sinn Féin members and they're executed um, and nobody knows what's going on, basically. So these two brothers, you know, their stories, there's not by any means unique in that regard but what is unique about this story is a photo survives of their bodies after what had happened to them so as a result the oral history in the area has survived um, uh, what happened to them? Uh, it's, it's quite I mean a lot of it is conjecture because again there's not a lot of eyewitnesses to see what happened because basically they were lifted um, while out cutting corn with 20 other people the van pulled up and, and, and took them away and they were told the family was told that they were put in, in jail in Galway City and after three days the mother and the sister went in to look for them and they were told that they actually escaped that they weren't in Galway City uh, and as it so transpired that they were actually brutally beaten in, in Gort Barracks by the RAC and the Black and Tans together um, the RAC were seen going in buying rope from, from a local hardware shop on, on Bridge Street in the town and there's some eyewitness reports to see that that basically give evidence that the two brothers were dragged behind the, the RAC van. Yeah. My God. From Gort um, towards Kinvara direction, mm-hmm. which is you know the guts of ten miles or so. Yeah. Jesus. Christ. Um. Now their bodies were found in a ditch, uh, covered with oil. So they were found in a little puddle of of water, and the bodies were basically were burnt. Um. The oil on top had obviously been set alight. Now we don't know if they alive when they were set alight or not, but when the when the post mortem was carried out, they found that the um, some of their fingers were missing as well, and they had different uh, different things carved into their chest, and they also had grenades exploded in their mouths. What? Um, now I don't know how much damage was caused by the grenades, but the pictures are quite graphic. So and there's the pictures that survivor of the two bodies in the, the coffins. Two bodies in the coffins, yeah, yeah. So there was a, a local national school teacher had a photo, uh, had a camera, 
um, a man from Kinvera, um, Thomas Hines, and basically his house, his house actually was burnt out not long after because when they found the bodies, they had to get them back from uh, Drumhisna, uh, which is where they were found. They were waked first in Kinvera on the outskirts of the town, not far from Dungura as far as I know. And then they had to be transported from there back to Shenaglish. Now, the problem with that was all of their comrades were also on the run. <laughs> okay. Because, again, it's in the height of the activity. This is, you know, this is pre-truce. Um, pre-truce? So you're talking 19... I think it's October, November 1920. Yeah. Um, that kind of period before things started escalating. So there was another woman that was killed, Eileen Quinn, in Corker and Kiltartan at the same period. Very horrible period of our history. Yeah, but they were brought back anyway from Kinvara to to Schneglish, which is the church in Beha, um, under the cover of darkness. And basically, while the funeral was going on, uh, the RSE rocked in again, um, and they had the entire church and the congregation under under surveillance with machine gun men outside set up on the on the pillars of the church. And they went in and they forced the priest to open the coffins because they wanted to. I suppose take evidence of whatever military inquiry that they hadn't done to that point because they were getting pressure because of the huge amount of publicity yeah now those those pictures I don't know when they were published first but they weren't circulated when the boys were found were they published in like newspapers at the time uh, the, the pictures not that I've seen I mm-hmm. did an awful lot of research on it and I didn't see any of the pictures that I've seen um, obviously in history books of the area since mm-hmm but I suppose where I'm going with that is I, I did a blog post about that and I found an awful lot of detail from eyewitness statements and pension application forms from other IRA members 20 or 30 years later to yeah. describe the same event. But I always wondered why the two brothers were picked up. Um, and there, I had a lot of reasons proposed on the blog post, but I actually got an awful lot of abuse um, for even proposing potential reasons. Um, so I, I decided then that I would stay away from modern Irish history and um, because it was still fairly raw yeah and that kind of led me to focusing on 19th century history um which is what I primarily blog about now um because I don't want to get involved with politics and things like that so like again this is a very quick example I was contacted by on the centenary of this brutal killing I was contacted by a journalist from the Irish Times because he came across my blog yeah and he asked me would I would I do an interview? Um, and he wanted to take it from the sporting perspective because at the time that this happened, there was a resurgence in the popularity of Gaelic games and the parish is quite small and the two brothers were the captain and the goalkeeper. Okay. And after their death, the club kind of fell apart and he was trying to take that angle because a lot of people have written about what had happened to them. And again, a lot of it stems from the picture because it's a lot easier to tell the story when you have pictures to see the results. Of course, yeah. But one of the things that came evident from talking to him was um, he didn't want to have a political agenda. And I was like, look, that's exactly why I don't want to be too involved with this, but I'll put you in touch with people in the area that every year commemorate them. Um, So, for example, like Sinn Féin will always come at their anniversary and do a speech at their graveside. And that's fine, but it's just something I don't want to get involved with. I'm more about the history as opposed to the the connotations to nowadays, Mm -hmm. which leads me back to, you know, 19th century where... Uh, most of the time enough time has passed that people don't get too upset about what you write yeah um, I don't want to be getting abused for the sake of doing history and research that I enjoy doing to be honest yeah, yeah exactly you like, know, you know. I'm not doing it for anybody else only myself and there's a, a little bit of an egomaniac in me that the reason I'm blogging is so that people can see that I've done this and yeah. found the research and that somebody else might make make use of it so for example I mean 
I would recommend anybody that has an interest in history to set up a blog and uh, I mean you won't get abuse unless it's something as controversial as that but the good definitely outweighs the bad so again I've, I've written about one of the events I'm, I'm digressing here now but it's a great story basically one of the reasons I proposed for one of the brothers for being abducted the older brother Harry um, sorry Pat is the older brother Pat was very very much involved with the IRA and Sinn Féin um, in, the, in the area now, he was, you know, in his mid-twenties, you're talking 26, 27. But he was seen the week before coming back from an IRA ambush on, a, an, on an RIC police patrol in Peterswell. Now, Peterswell is a good distance from Beha, where I'm from. And most of those people that were involved, so you're talking about 40-odd people versus three policemen. So two of the policemen were shot dead and the third policeman escaped. Of the 40-odd people, Pat was the only one that was seen walking home during the day through the town yeah and he would have had no reason to be out that side of the town so it wouldn't take a rocket scientist to put together that he might have been involved with this and if there was suspicions out there that he was an IRA member I'm sure that could have played a huge role of the following week them coming out so I wrote about that in like a kind of a pre-blog to the main blog and I was contacted by a grandson of one of the policemen that was shot dead and he thanked me for writing the story, number one, because, I, again, I wasn't writing it from a nationalist perspective. I was just talking about this is what happened and did a little bit of research about the two boys that were killed. And they were both from, they were both Irish. Yeah. One of them was from Kerry. And it was this lad's... Uh, well, or, m- most members of the RUC yeah, at that stage are I- a- Irish. Absolutely, like, you know. yeah, absolutely. And I think it's something that a lot of people don't want to talk about, but absolutely. It, and um, the country was quite lawless. I know, but people yeah. don't have a, a lot of time for them. But, like, you know, there's, like, you know agrarian violence going all over yeah. the place and you know they did bring a, a measure of a law and order to the country yeah and you know uh, it's always construed in um uh, a nationalist way to view things but like you know there was nothing before they were set up so yeah yeah for sure and uh, i'd agree with you but i think a lot of that is tarnished from the black and tans and i think the auxiliaries with that of course i think that that definitely is the the brushstroke i would say that in the land war where a lot of people have this conception that the the police were the ones evicting. The police weren't the ones evicting. The police were there to make sure violence didn't break out. The victors were the one evicting. They, yeah. had, they had their own crowbar teams, as they called them, coming to demolish the house to get people out. The police were there to make sure violence didn't happen. No more than how we have now today. And, and, and again, I'm on dangerous territory here. <laughs> but if we had protests, if there was a protest about something and anti-protesters turn up, the police are going to be there to make sure there's no violence. Yeah. So in that kind of a way, I, I mean, obviously... And now I'm no apologist for the British government. Like there's a lot of things that they definitely got wrong, but I think there's a broader understanding there that's kind of hidden because it's easy to hide them with one brush. There's a lot more grey area than black and absolutely, white. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think even when they tried to to commemorate the RIC, it was last year. Yeah. That definitely opened the wound, and I thought maybe we might have been past that, but I don't think we are. But I'll just finish on that 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 story because again, if some historian is listening and they need a little bit of a push. Mm-hmm. so the grandson reached out to me and we we developed a relationship chatting over and back and I said look I don't have a whole lot of information because this was just this pet project I wasn't really delving into it it's not a book or anything yeah and he said well look I actually have a transcription of my grandfather's dying words on the roadside and oh. I said well where did you get that and he said well actually the priest came on the attack just after it happened and he administered the, the last rites to my grandfather because they could see his number was up yeah. you know so the priest actually took testimony from him as he was dying now he wasn't trying to get anybody in trouble he just described what had happened 
and the priest wrote it down and then I think years later there was a commemoration by his family on his death as an RIC member not related to the attack and the priest or one of his descendants reached out to the family and gave him this copy so I got the copy of it through that and it goes back to the whole thing there's so much of Irish history we, we don't know because it's hidden it's yeah. hidden in attics or it's hidden in a shoebox or, or wherever so if anybody's listening and they're kind of half tempted to do it I would recommend blogging I mean it's it's, it's very easy to do and don't mean like me can do it anybody can do it to yeah. be honest but so yes yeah, so that's why it turned into the, the, the 18th 19th century stuff and I suppose that the big event there would be the famine um, but there's other things as well that I come across that aren't, aren't that well researched um, so I was blogging more about things that happened in the parish in the 1900s sorry the 1800s and in the meantime then that took a backseat again because I found a job in the meantime. <laughs> um, I, I started working in Ennis. Um, and I, it was very much a, a job of nepotism. My, my, my auntie asked for a job for me and I got it as a result. I had absolutely no experience in the, in the, in the job. But at that stage, my, uh, my pride had definitely left me because I was dying to get working, to be honest. Yeah, of course. It was tough. So I ended up making hot chicken rolls <laughs> um, in a deli counter. So that was not what I had imagined when I left Galway, um, NYG. What year was that? Uh, that would have been September 2011, I would say. Yeah, towards, it was towards the tail end of the year after I left, um, roughly. And, and then you would have gone to UL then maybe in 2012? Yeah, so, yeah so, so basically after working in a, in a stinky, greasy would, deli counter, I w- didn't... Would you, sorry, back to the hot chicken rolls. Would, have you, would you have sold more spicy or plain? Spicy. People go for spicy, huh? Yeah. And spicy. was your spicy actually no, like spicy? It, 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 it was. It just it, had her- herbs in it. Yeah, it wasn't hot. It wasn't hot. It wasn't flavor, hot spicy. spicy. No, it was it just, just had uh, herbs in it. It was just called spicy. It was. It tastes different to the plain as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I always go for spicy. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Uh, I used to go for plain, but I always go for spicy now. Yeah, I, mean, I I don't know. I kind of mix it up. I mean, I learned fairly quickly all the different things you can put in a roll. Okay, uh, so if you were a deli lad and I said, "Can I have half plain, half spicy?" Would you look at me with two heads? Half plain, half spicy is in the fillet. Yeah, I would. Yeah, because I mean, you're going to be charged double, like. Oh, would you? Oh yeah. Sure, it's two fillets. Like. Two fillets, like. Well, sure. Can't you just someone come in and order a half one and give the half? No. No, sure, who's going to order? <laughs> apart from you, who who's going to come in and order a half chicken fillet? I don't fucking order a half chicken fillet. Yeah, well, I don't know. So, so that's a case in point. Ha- nobody orders a half. Does chicken someone ever order a half one? No one does. No. No. So what I would probably do there is I'd probably give you like chicken tenders and something. You know? Oh right, okay. But even then, like, not that I, I want to do this. I'd, I'd, have, to, I'd have to know, know you. You know, I wouldn't be doing that for any job. Uh, well, sure. If you knew me, you'd just give me two chicken fillets on the roll. Yeah, I would. But anyway. Uh, yeah, so the chicken fillets, I mean, they last, I was working in there. Um, so I, I was basically promoted fairly quickly off making chicken fillets to the bread man. So I was responsible for all the pastries and breads that were cooked in the shop. Um, and I realized quite quickly that I didn't like retail. Yeah. <laughs> and it goes back to what I was saying earlier. It's, it's more important to know what you don't want to do, I think. Um, so it was Sounds angry. like you just don't like people. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> It does sound like that now, but and actually, what? I do like people. Yeah, you know? I know, I know. Um, so yeah, I was angling to get out of that, um, and in the meantime, I had met my now significant daughter Leslie, and she was very supportive about going down the whole history route and trying to see if I could do anything with that. 
but at the time I was kind of stuck in a rut doing my own family history and I kind of hit as many brick walls as I could with the, the, the money I had at the time for because a lot of like I don't know if you're aware a lot of the stuff is subscription based access stuff Cost money, like yeah, you've access to all that stuff for free when you're in third level college. Yeah, but when you're outside of that, you know, you're paying for exactly. you're paying for that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, like 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 the archives and stuff. Well, not necessarily the archives, but the material that's been digitized or is available online. You can't just look at it for free. No, most of it is behind. So, the like paywall. Irish newspaper archive, you, yeah, you have to pay. All, you have to look at paywall. Yeah. yeah. Oh, like oh, newspaper stuff. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But like some that. stuff is out there for free. Like you have the 1901 and 1911 censuses for free online. Yeah. A lot of actually, that'll tell you how how things have changed. When I started doing genealogy, it was eight euros for a birth certificate or, or a copy of a certificate. And now they're all online for free okay. at a certain point. Well, that's great. So, I mean, I've literally spent hundreds of euros for nothing, but that's another story. So Growing pains. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I'd done my own, I suppose I wanted to do more. It was like, it's like an addiction, to be honest, an obsession. Yeah. So. And then I started doing it for friends and family. I said, geez, I could make money out of this. So I started doing it on the side for a kind of <laughs> sneaky cash and hand job. Mm-hmm. And that was funding holidays for, I suppose, a year or two. And then she said, well, we not go back and do something in college and see if we can get a certificate, see if we can go from there with that. So that's how I stumbled across the, um, the certificate in, U- in the University of Limerick. They were doing a, an adult education certificate on genealogy and the history of family. And that was great just to see the broader aspects, because, of course, my own family were all Catholic, poor tenant farmers. Mm-hmm. But during a course like that, you get to understand a bit more about the Church of Ireland or you know the, the Quakers the Presbyterians I mean Ireland is so multicultural even back to, or multi-religious at that stage that you know again it's written out of a lot of history we don't talk about that yeah Um. so that was eye-opening for that so I kept going with that it took me about a year to do that it was really interesting and in the meantime I got promoted in the shop again so I, I left the the deli counter completely and started working on the shop floor doing fruit and veg orders of all things <laughs> so again I'm probably the most Irish fella in terms of, I didn't know anything, no any cabbages. And what were turnips. you saying that, that go off really easily? Um, like green beans, what was it? Green beans? Uh, I mean, there was a lot of things. Ma- Mange too? Yeah, Ma- Mange too, yeah. That Mange go, too? That would go off ridiculously quick. Okay. That and, you know, the mini baby sweet corns that you get for stir-fries. Yeah, fries, baby sweet corns. so quickly. Really? Sweet uh, corn? Be- baby sweet corn. Bean sprouts goes off very quickly. Bean sprouts. Yeah. And they yeah. smell horrendous when they go Absolutely off. Absolutely horrendous. As does Coke that's gone off, by the way. Coca-Cola? Coca-Cola is horrible. Uh, wait, Coca-Cola goes off? Coca-Cola does go off, yeah. It does. Yeah. How the fuck does that go off? <laughs> I don't know. Like, did you have, like, like, 20-year-old bottles of Coca-Cola in there? I wouldn't be that old. Like, so again, to backtrack in the shop, like, a lot of the stuff in, in shops is what they, what they call sale and return. Yeah. So if it's not sold, you go back to the company who owns the product, and you get credit. They take the stuff that's out of date, and they give you credit for for what you've already bought the product for so if i buy 100 bars of chocolate and i only sell 70 the other 30 bars are now out of date i claim the price of those 30 bars back from the company and they'll give me the credit you don't send the bars back well you're supposed to <laughs> but a lot of places they won't even bother yeah um, they won't they'll say look just bin them so so you, res- you can fudge it a little bit as a, as a result then you're, you're going to have fudge it absolutely <laughs> and that's how I know the gone off, gone off coke <laughs> smells really bad yeah because we had a lot of coke that we found that were hidden in the storeroom and basically we thought we'd, we'd drink it and somebody opened it and 
it was pretty nasty smelling out to be honest nobody braved it enough to drink it well if yeah. you can use something uh, like that for cleaning cleaning metal or something yeah, yeah. you know yeah. you shouldn't drink it <laughs> yeah mm, yeah you're right I was, uh, drinking things that are gone off myself and Philip uh, one one time he had a keg that was from 10 years in the past right might have been longer might have been 15 years keg of Guinness I was like really he's like yeah go out there and look at the keg and I go out and I shake it around a bit. I'm like, there's still Guinness in there. He's like, well, fuck it. I was like, I know how to get it out. That's so, nasty. So anyway, we, we propped it up, got a bowl, took a shtick, and got the Guinness out. And it it smelled very, very strange. And I was like, I'm not going to drink this at all. I, did, I, I, think I, I think I put my finger in it and tasted it. <laughs> and it didn't taste like anything. Like, it tasted well. I can't describe it. Philip took a nice big gulp. Oh, and he goes, Jesus, that alien. <laughs> that it tasted alien. like liquid. It was liquid. Oh no, it was like black, like Guinness. But yeah. it was. Does that does that remind me? I could be wrong here now, but did we do something like that as young lads in Kinvara, where we got a keg and it was? Were you there? I was. I was there, but I didn't drink it. We drank. We drank, we drank a few gone off kegs in Kinvara. Yeah, I wasn't there that night because I remember procured we, from establishments. Yeah, that was left out for a reason. That like. was left out for a reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I remember distinctly, it was around the time of the leaving search, or I was doing an exam of the leaving search. Do you know what? I don't think I was there when that when you did it. Okay, so that sounds like it's so, it's just because like the lads from Kinvara would be at this all the time. Yeah. So I think I was only involved in maybe two or three of these fantastic events yeah, yeah, yeah. of finding a keg and uh, bringing it up yeah. by the wall and drinking gone off Guinness for two days yeah I, I, like I know this this particular story relates to what you were saying because I, I don't think I was a huge drinker at that stage mm-hmm. and I, I, I had nothing to do with the Guinness it was just more I didn't want to drink yeah and uh, the boys drank it and then they were supposed to be in school the following Monday this is like a Friday evening or Saturday night <laughs> and on the Monday all the boys were not still not in work not, not in school like <laughs> on Tuesday still no sign of them so on the Wednesday I think Mulligan I think was one of them I was yeah like, well what's the crack he goes Jesus an awful dose of the scours for the last four days <laughs> oh my god <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah so like that kind of put me off any kegs are left outside the pub I was like nah I can stay yeah. where it is you know? yeah. yeah it's not worth it no well when you're that age it's worth it yeah but you it's know. worth it for the story 15 it's, years well, it's later a great story, it's like, worth it know? to get drunk as well I mean even even watching the, the, the mechanics and the the dance that's done to open a keg when you have no tap is a, it's oh, a sight to behold it's very easy yeah. for anyone out there trying to open a keg again it's it's very easy it's very, very knowledge, easy. like you take the keg and you put it upside down and you kind of have it leaned against the wall then you get a shtick and you shove it up in the hole yeah, and, it just and, then, and then it comes out yeah. and you, but you, have, you have to have a bucket down there <laughs> so any young fellas out there underage drinking that's how you get a keg open <laughs> they might have changed it now jeez they might have they might after the hearing new this kegs now, might be different you know, the cat's out of the bag Lavin. I don't know I feel like there should be some kind of disclaimer there. Yeah, so. I think so. Yeah, <laughs> young lads don't drink underage. Yeah, we don't condone but any of but that. But definitely do because that's where the stories are. Definitely from. do drink underage. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so from the course uh, history of family and genealogical studies in UL. Yeah. Did that bring you onto the job? Um, it, it, it did. It did. It did. Um, so at that stage, again, going off the fruit and veg, I was promoted to managing the shop eventually. So it was a fairly large shop, you know, it was 80 odd staff, turnover probably two or three million a year, 
potentially I mean I don't know the exact figures but there's a lot of responsibility and you know long hours not great money I needed an out to be honest and uh, I seen uh, <laughs> I joined LinkedIn which is one of the first steps I had to leave the retail industry yeah. um, and one of the first things I came across actually was Ancestry had a had a job posting on LinkedIn so I applied for it um, you know didn't hear back got absolutely nowhere back was very disheartened that I didn't even get to say like look you're not good enough for yeah. thanks for your, yeah. your application got none of that so I kind of got disheartened with that then kind of stage I thought at that stage that my life was set to work in retail so kind of made my, 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 my bones with that but then about six months later the same job posting came up and uh, my partner Leslie applied on my behalf oh lovely kind of unbeknownst to me almost and then I got an email back um, the second time around asking me for an interview so I decided I'd go for the interview so it was up in Dublin and it was probably the most strenuous interview process I've ever had in any job interviews and bear in mind I had the 62 70 odd yeah, yeah. interviews at that year and a half period so I passed the first round interview it was a phone 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 conversation then you had to do the whole you know do you remember Mavis Beacon typing oh yeah 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 to do one of those do you, did you ever I do that, know what that school? you didn't have Mavis Beacon so it was like basically you control a little car by typing words so it was a way to teach you how to type to really to type. yeah no yeah. I've never come across that yeah, yeah you're in a little car yeah it, I think it was on a floppy disk wasn't it it was on a floppy disk yeah, yeah we're, we're, we're millennium kids here now Um. oh yeah Rich is old is he older than he older yeah yeah so, still look better than you don't so, so right. yeah 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 <laughs> so I had to do all these kind of tests to, to basically prove that I could use a computer because um, again genealogy is very generally speaking it's for the elderly or people who are retired so yeah. not everybody would have computer skills so I understood that wait why did you have to do Mavis Bacon? to I, well, it wasn't actually Mavis Beacon but it was kind of a similar thing where you it do, wasn't Mavis Bacon? no Beacon was it Beacon or Bacon? I don't know well, you're looking I, at me very smugly there when you're saying I thought it was bacon. <laughs> Maybe it's bacon. Anyway, it doesn't right, matter. Right, we go with bacon. Yeah. Okay, it sounds better. I just wanted to make it change the way you're saying it. I'm not going to change. I just question it. All right. All right. All right. So it was just a, a thing that was like it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It was a thing like it was like it. Um, but then I had a panel interview with five people. Yeah. For an hour and a half, which was insane. And then I had, and it's typical me, I overthink everything, as, as Ryan would know. But I had a, an assignment to do. So you, it was a set assignment. I had two hours or three hours to get it done. I was given a brief of what the research goal was for this particular session. And up to this point, all I had done was Irish genealogy. And the, the brief I got was for Italian genealogy. Okay. So I had to start thinking outside the box. Um, got the thing done anyway. Got handed in my assignment. The next thing, it was all done online. You had to do submit, submit button. And there was a, supposed to be a timer counting down as you do it. So you know that you have X amount of time mm -hmm. left to finish mm -hmm. the assignment. And when I went to click submit, it reset the timer. And I thought, right, okay, is this one of these corporate strategies to see how, how honest you are? Or is it just a glitch in the system? So I went with my gut to it's probably them being sly. So I emailed HR and said, look, I have it done in this amount of time, but the timer doesn't record that. So it turned out that it actually was just a glitch. I was overthinking okay. everything. But anyway, I'm digressing majorly there, but I ended up getting the job. Um, I was hired in, in, a, in a position below what I had applied for. Not above? No, because they had felt that I hadn't the, the, the desired experience. 
So you started off as an assistant genealogist, is yeah, that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I started off as, actually, no, I started as an associate. Um, um, I was I was only doing that for about a year. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, so there's a tiered system there. Um, essentially, it's all the same jobs, but it's more administrative stuff. Um, so maybe elaborate on why someone would contact uh, Ancestry for their services and yeah know, what your kind of day-to-day would be yeah so my day-to-day to be honest every day is different are, are you kind of like a beat cop right now how do you mean like you know on the streets doing the eh, this and that or are you kind of more like you know the cop in the office you know yeah more along the lines of a cop in the office you're okay. putting everything together okay um, would you prefer to be a beat cop no okay no i wouldn't <laughs> okay that's, that's good much, that's much, good I'm, I'm that's good prefer, you know that i much prefer being in a in a room left with my own devices and yeah looking at all. now in saying that i love going to archives mm-hmm. and a lot of the stuff that we need isn't in, isn't online so there has to be a mix but to answer your question richie like my day when i started off um typically the person that comes to us is uh you know a third or fourth generation irish american looking to find out where their John Murphy came from in, and, in Ireland. So just, it, you mainly deal with Irish and... Yeah, so within Ancestry, there's a division uh, within... So, Anse- yeah, I'll, I'll start from the very start. Ancestry.com is the currently the largest genealogy subscription website out there. Um, they started off as a book publishing company and then realized that the data they had in their books could be moved online and the business would built on from that. Okay. So then... I don't know exactly how many years ago, but they, they decided to have a professional researchers division within the company. Um, so they do a lot of work for TV shows like Who Do You Think You Are would be one of the most famous ones. Um, Henry Lewis is Henry Lewis Gates Jr. has another one. Finding Your Roots is another oh, okay. one. Loads of TV shows in the states uh, and here. I mean, we have the the UK Who Do You Think You Are. We do a lot of research for that as well. Um, and we have the Australia. There's loads and loads of TV shows. So they basically have a division called Pro Genealogists, who I work for, and that's tiered. So you have lots of different positions within that. So you have an associate level genealogist, which is basically doing formatting. So when we do research, we keep a research log and everything that is on that research log, there has to be a citation that accompanies that so that somebody can find. It's very academic. Yeah. You can find where where the document you're looking at came from. Yeah. So the research associate would be doing that kind of thing. Um, an assistant then would have more responsibility to do research, but still have an expectation to do a lot of admin stuff. And then the genealogist, um, and, and, and from then forward, there's a lot more emphasis on the genealogical research because you have a lot of experience behind you. You know an awful lot more about the sources and, and where to find things. So now in my current job, a lot of it would be kind of 50 50 uh the typical client would be somebody that has had ancestors that went to the to the states australia wherever um in the 1850s or 1860s that's looking for the place of origin or it's somebody that is adopted that has no paper research okay that's very interesting so the irish team is the team i work on but there's, yeah. there's teams out there for all different ethnic minority ethnic groups basically so we have a, a team for uh, what we call non-paternal event. So people are adopted and we have a Jewish immigration case team. We have, you know, every kind of every kind of research you can think of. We can we can do it or we know people that can help us do it. Yeah. Um. so my first few cases were Polish, Greek 
and Italian genealogy. I didn't get an Irish case for the first few weeks. Wow. So that was a steep learning curve, you know. Yeah. And that's one thing I love about the job. You're constantly learning more. Sounds fascinating, really, yeah, to be honest with you. Absolutely, yeah. And, and then with the, the DNA aspect, I was very lucky when I joined. DNA hadn't quite exploded as it has now. So when I started, about 4 million people had done consumer DNA tests that you can buy online and they tell you, you know, you're 88% Irish or whatever else. Yeah. It's kind of pseudo science. It's a marketing ploy. But the DNA matches is what's really important with those because everybody gets 50% of their DNA from their mother and their father. And then it, it, it quarters or it halves each, each generation you go back. And then you use probabilities to work out relationships between people build out their trees and then identify people that could be the person's father or mother okay it sounds really easy <laughs> but, it, <laughs> but it's not and it's it's ironic because maths was my least favorite subject in school but i'm using probability every single day now wow. but when i do my job well somebody knows who their birth parents are yeah and i've worked a lot of different jobs in my life and there's no job satisfaction like that yeah i mean kpis and and profit and loss money wastage all that stuff when you do your job well it doesn't matter a shite because you're making money for somebody else yeah of and course. it's not a tangible thing yeah whereas when you're doing something with a, an adoptee you've made an impact and it's something that you'll never ever forget so like i can't say a whole lot about the clients that we've worked with but i'll tell this story um the first dna case i ever solved and i thought okay are they all going to be like this or not but it worked out nicely so because we have such a a, a long uh, hold up of work so I have like generally it takes six months from start to finish from when the client rings and asks can we get you to do work until the thing is done and because I was one of the first on the ground level in doing DNA research we had a very big long uh, backload of cases and I was assigned this case you know maybe two months out from Christmas time and working in retail I never enjoyed Christmas never had Christmas off hated christmas i hated any kind of holiday because yeah, it's yeah. just a nightmare to work so i was very very keen to get my first christmas off and spend it with my family so i had put in my three weeks holiday request i had three weeks off once i had my holidays holiday days i didn't care work was work and i could just leave it at that but the problem was i got a request about a month out from christmas from my boss saying we have this elderly lady she wants to find out who her birth parents are she also wants to get a picture of her birth parents. She knows it's probably not going to happen, but we're going to do our best to find it. And this lady was in her late 80s, okay? So her parents were dead. And I was like, okay, I'll do my best, but I have such a uh, backload, it's going to take me a while to get to it. So about three weeks later, and this is about a week before I go on holidays, he says, how are we getting on with that case? <laughs> I haven't even started. He said, look, we need to do it this week. And I said, this week, the entire case, now a case could be 40 hours of research. Yeah. So it's a full week of work on its yeah. own. And I said, look, it's not possible. I have too many other things on. He said, no, no, we need, we need to do it. And I said, why? And he said, she was diagnosed with cataracts in her eyes. So she will be blind by, by Christmas time. Oh, God. Oh, so we will know, we will, even if we're successful and we find the photograph, she won't see them. And I was like, okay, I'll do my best. So actually turned out to be a fairly nice case to work on um the dna matches showed us to two distinct families the hardest part in the dna case is trying to figure out is this for the mother or is this for the father okay because you don't know yeah of you course just get two different groups yeah, 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 yeah of course so in this particular case she had a little bit of information but she didn't know how true it was because most adoptees have something uh, some of them do not all of them 
but she had some oral information. She didn't know where she got it from, but she had this surname. And when we looked at the DNA matches, this surname appeared and it, it was close enough that it was probably for her mother's side based on what we had been told. So I started researching this woman um, she had this name and I researched this woman and basically she had a marriage notice published in a newspaper. So this is 1943 roughly or just before it and the marriage notice was to a man with the surname of the second cluster of DNA matches. So we had the two surnames from the DNA that we hadn't known about and we had the surname of the mother that she brought with her to tell us it when we started the session. And I figured it out quite quickly that actually they were her birth parents. Um, so they ended up getting married. So what had happened was the husband, they got, they got engaged. He went off to the war. He went and fought in Japan during World War Two. They came back. They got married. And they had a family. But what must have happened was she must have been pregnant before he left. And the father might not have known that. Wow. Okay. So that was interesting just to find that out. But the minute I seen he was a soldier, I was like, bingo. Because we applied for his military file and the military file had a picture. So we had the picture of the father. So then I kept doing a lot of newspaper records, researches, and it turned out that her mother was involved with the church group and she had done some, you know, she some fundraising. She had a massive check. Sure enough, we had a picture of her mother and we actually found all the, the siblings. Now, to wrap up the story, because I could go on talking about it for ages, uh, I sent off the email, delighted that I got it done sent off the email came back three weeks later in the new year and I had a hate of emails to go through but I went straight down to look for the response from my boss about this particular email and he said let's just say her name is Mary yeah Mary died and I was like that's really sad you know like but did she see the email before she died he said she died an hour after she read it Oh my God. And every, wow. time, every time I tell that story and, and even think about it, I'll never forget the chill blades I had up the back of my neck. Yeah. Fucking hell. Now her daughter came back to us and said, I, I'm pretty sure she was just waiting to see the photos. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I'm not a real believer in any higher power and all that. I mean, it's not something I, I talk about much, but it was very coincidental that that happened. And that's the kind of job satisfaction I get, you know? Unbelievable. When I do that's my job wonderful. Well, yeah it's wonderful so so I think to date I'm probably up again 18 adoptees that I've been able to solve their brick wall now I've 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 pulled away from doing a lot of DNA research now um, I use DNA a lot more now to, to help with traditional Irish cases and wow well that's uh, that's brilliant yeah yeah lovely so story hopefully uh, hopefully I didn't ramble on too long with that one but yeah it's definitely one of those it's a flavour of what I get what I get to do I'm very privileged privilege, don't get me wrong it's a lot of hard work but it's definitely worth it when you get to do things like that. That's amazing, Eamon. I never knew that that was kind of stuff you worked in. I always thought it was more uh, family tree based. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's one of those things that kind of a common misconception as well. That a lot of the time um, when people think about family trees, I suppose the, the general thing you think about is, is the pedigree chart. You know, you've got your chart, which are pedigree your chums. <laughs> pedigree chums, yeah. <laughs> your birth marriage and death and just the dates and a lot of people just leave it at that you know mm-hmm. but one of the things we do in our job um in, in at least in ancestry where we do an awful lot of contextual research and try to place people in those periods you know and that kind of got me involved in different things of different aspects of irish history i wouldn't known a lot about um 
so from that then I decided to do uh, an evening studies course try, trying to learn more again about those kind of things again to bring number one to bring value to the client when we're doing the research and number two just because I was curious and somebody else was paying for me to do yeah. more in education you know so I end up doing uh, what's called the Lord Mayor's Certificate in, in Dublin because the, I should have said the, jo- the job is in Dublin so when I was in Ennis I moved from Ennis to Dublin for the job and at the time I had the very uh, the very West Coast attitude of you know well screw Dublin like you know so when we sat down there was 20, 20 out of us in the class and everybody there was from Dublin except me okay and uh, I was definitely reminded of it quite often and a lot of people there were also a lot older as well so there yeah. wasn't just would they age. call you bogger or culture I mean not as bluntly as that but they would definitely make references that would yeah. they yeah. wouldn't be very welcoming you know to say <laughs> yeah so like it wasn't just the ages thing where I was you know 30 years younger than everybody else but it was also the fact that I was definitely an outsider so I decided to own that um and I decided I want to do my my project for that course on Gort um, with a focus on the famine so I fell in love with the 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 material the source material I was using for that studies um, and I went on from there so basically I did that course it was a year-long course and they have a very uh, an accolade uh, like an award ceremony at the end where they give the the best <laughs> the best dissertation a prize and I end up winning it <laughs> uh, much to the, the much to uh, everybody else being kind of jealous about that in the course because they had all <laughs> Dublin related stuff and yeah. here I was wearing the Lord Mayor of Dublin's prize for well, a Galway yeah. project oh. um, so yeah so the, the course coordinator for that course was very very um, enthusiastic about me continuing on with that project and seeing if I could do something in college with that because yeah. that course was loosely associated with uh, I'm going to get this wrong now it's either UCD or DIT or one of them what now? Um, two colleges in Dublin. It was, There's it two was, colleges in Dublin? Well, it was associated with one of the colleges in Dublin and the Peer Street Archive, um, which is the main archive in Dublin for Dublin Dublin records, basically. So he said, well, you should go back and do a local studies course. And he himself had done a local studies course in Minute, anyway, in Minute. So he put me in contact with people there. And the ball got rolling from that, where basically I was going to go back and do a master's. But again, with the focus on building on what I had done for that that Lord Mayor's Prize uh, certificate course, focusing on Gort during the famine. And when I got in there, then I was I was a year I had done a year of the masters and doing a part time. It was four years while working full time. So after a year doing that, my 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 thesis supervisor said to me, "You know, there's there's actually room for a PhD in here if you can somehow manage to find funding for that." Um. And I said, well, what kind of commitment is that? And he said, you know, it's six years part time. So again, I'm a year in. I'm, you know, thinking three years versus five years. Yeah. It's a lot of commitment. You yeah. Know? So I went away and had a discussion with Leslie and decided I'd go for it. Um, luckily enough, I managed to get the funding. And built on the master's initial project and expanded that to do a comparative. So the initial master's project was to look at Gort during the famine with a very particular focus on the workhouse administration and this is this is the like the poor law union yeah so the poor law union so so what is that so in 1838 basically uh, a national system of relief for the poor was set up and the country was divided into different geographical areas 
which were called poor law unions and the center of each poor law union was a workhouse where people would be relieved in the workhouse um kind of like uh what's that charles dickens uh oliver oliver twist oliver twist so similar to that yeah or like any charles dickens book uh, yeah yeah i mean he does focus on the squalor a lot but i suppose he's a it's a reflection of the time he's living in i suppose yeah um so yeah so that that board that board of so basically that poor law union was set up as i said in 1838 but the people that actually ran the union were called board of guardians and they were mostly made up of the large land landlords or large farmers or people that were in the middle to upper class not for the they weren't they had no idea what it was like for a poor person but again it was for the first time it was a national relief system set up for the poor so it was it was a good thing you know yeah. it had been set up in england four years uh, previous to a, another in, in a similar thing but in Gort, during the famine, as things intensified, uh, the Board of Guardians were doing a very bad job. Um, they hadn't gathered the right finances to keep the system going. So the guys in charge booted them out. The, those guys in charge of the Poor Law Commission, they told them, no, you're not good enough. They dissolved them, which was, again, uh, it was an insult to the, you can imagine, again, the local landlords. He's not used to hearing no. He's, he's the king of his own domain. Yeah. Nobody's going to go against him. And when these guys came in and said, "No, you're you're not you're not good enough," it did it left a bad taste in the mouth. So these guys were replaced by what were essentially two full time employees in in the workhouse, and they were called vice guardians. And when I started looking to learn more about them, I could find nothing, and nobody done any research on them really. And when I started doing a bit more digging, uh, nearly a quarter of all workhouses in the country, the exact same thing happened. Um, so nobody had looked at that. So I thought the best way to, to learn more about that is to compare it to a union where there was no vice guardians to see what the difference was and whether they were you know better or worse or if it was the same, did it make any difference? So I decided to compare against Ballyshannon in, okay. in Donegal. Ballyshannon, hey. Yeah. He's never been. I haven't, no, never, oh. never, no, never. Well, that's something Not, to do in 2022. Yeah, anyway. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm going to head up there now and do a research trip for, for the college, but hopefully get in uh, Rory Gallagher at the same time. You're going to, yeah, it's around the same time? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm planning on it. We'll see. I might go up. Yeah. It's a great weekend. I was a huge fan of Rory back in the day. Against the Grain is one of those albums where I still listen to fairly regular. Against the Grain? Yeah. So What about like <laughs> Top Secret or... All his albums, they have this, they have like a name, like cool, like like 70s cool, like, but it's all related to like, like police shit or whatever. Does that make sense? It's like, 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 like fucking, what is it? Like, uh, something number one, like public enemy number one. It's not like that, but they all have this like really funny name. I can't, I can't think off the top of my head. They all like, even a lot of his songs, like continental op. It's like, <laughs> it's like, it's, yeah, it's, it's just so funny. Like, it's I was like <laughs> what he was writing about, you know. Very grand names, all right. So yeah, so that's 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 what I'm doing now with the for for my students a PhD, looking at those. So I'm I'm halfway there. Um, three years in now. Um, starting to get the stage where I have to start sharing some of my findings with my academic peers and yeah, basically not just finishing after six years. Nobody's heard anything about vice guardians and me trying to make a name for myself with that. I'm trying to get it in there now. Yeah. So we, we even spoke um, off air about that um, case that you came across in Ennis Diamond Workhouse. And that's kind of um, an example of 
19th century fake news kind of yeah yeah so you get you get that a lot i mean anything history related i mean it's the same to the, to this day you know i mean there's always going to be people with a certain bias writing about certain things um and back then because of course i'm dealing with the famine period we don't have as many records to work with as we do now there's an awful danger of putting too much emphasis on one record set and getting a, a, a an inaccurate picture mm-hmm. um and, and that was a perfect example so Basically, it was a newspaper report um, of two children that were punished for whatever workhouse infraction they had done against the rules. Because, of course, it was a very strict regime within the workhouse. Yeah. Um, you were separated from your family. Your hair was cut. You were told what to do, when to do it. So if you went against that, you were either punished physically or there was other rules put in place to, to punish you. And in this case, I think the story went... Now, you might refresh my memory because it's been a while since I looked at that because it was a horrible case. But the story went that they were put into a, 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 a like a black hole room. Exactly, yeah. And locked away and forgotten about. And when they came back and when they finally remembered, I think one of them was, was dead. Or I think both of them were both like holding both. each other. Yeah, they passed. yeah, they passed away. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Now, again, dealing with the subject I'm dealing with, I always come across really heartbreaking stories. Um, and I've developed a fairly thick skin that it doesn't affect me too much but that story stuck with me yeah which is why I shared it on Twitter um, because it was heartbreaking um, and I just said right I'm going to share this I'm going to step away for the weekend I'm not going to do any more research because I couldn't my head wasn't in the game and one of the people I know fairly well came back to me and said look you know you need to pursue this is this did this actually happen or not it's the following day then and I got my thoughts together I actually proved that it didn't or it looked like it didn't I mean I never know but the person that was, you know, told in the newspapers report as being responsible wasn't there when it happened. So. Oh, so it was fabricated? It seemed to have been, yeah. Yeah, yeah it seems to have been. Now, that's not to say that. And how do you find, like, where, where do you find that it's, the, where would you come to that conclusion? A lot of the time. A lot of the time using, is using as many sources as possible. So okay. for that one. Is this just like, like basic historian like one-on-one kind of stuff not necessarily i mean so with famine research a lot of the surviving material that's been used in nearly every famine book Mm -hmm. is what they call parliamentary papers the british government papers okay so you're already you're already off to a losing start there when you're looking at it from the top down Mm -hmm. you're not looking at it from what the four people were experiencing you're only telling one aspect of one strand of of truth so you have to use as many as you can. So I was looking at church records because, of course, they're a non-governmental source. Yeah. And newspapers. And newspapers have their own bias. So, like, this particular newspaper was conservative and the other newspapers were liberal. So between somewhere between the two is the truth, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a matter of trying to find as many sources as possible. Yeah. So, like, I might spend six months in an archive photographing thousands of photos. Yeah. But I might only use three or four photos because okay. they might not be relevant yeah but i don't know what's relevant until after the fact which is the just the bane of my existence to be honest yeah. as a historian i mean that's what you have to do uh, reasonably reasonably exhaustive search mm. you know what do you think a time team i love it yeah <laughs> i mean there's a nostalgia factor because of course i used to watch it a lot with you yeah uh, back in the day <laughs> um but also the fact that it gives you bite-sized chunks of history in a very accessible way um, yeah time team by the way is a television program is it channel four i think it's channel four it's channel four yeah where a uh, bunch of lads in britain 
Yeah, the United Kingdom and United United one Kingdom. or two in Ireland as well. Is one two in Ireland? They they go and they do a dig on a site for three days to find something. Yeah. Generally, they don't find much. I they, mean, they fucking like Samian a, ware a is pot. what they mostly find. Pottery. Like a coin or a pot. There's like one lad who's Cornish. Oh, he's not Cornish. Sorry, he's West Country. And he's always like, we will dig a trench down here, Tony. And Tony <laughs> Robinson presents it. Tony Robinson, yeah. Tony Robinson hems it up so much. Yeah. He's always just like, oh, we didn't find this here today. And we didn't find that. Well, we will find it in there. Yeah. And it's just like, Tony, stop trying to make it. It's, it's a bunch of lads digging a hole. <laughs> it's like that's why you're watching it it doesn't have to be it's true and most and, and what they do as well the part I love is they do kind of like a reenactment of, oh, they do, yeah. of some kind of life something to do with the life at the time that they're researching or digging for and nearly all of it revolves around alcohol always they're always in the <laughs> so pub that, oh they used to drink meat oh we'll, re, we'll recreate that whole process <laughs> <laughs> fast yeah. forward to the end of night two they're all in a tent getting scuttered like yeah <laughs> it's a great watch but uh, but no, but I mean it's it's a great question because I think that's the problem with history, it's not mm-hmm. accessible, you know. Yeah. Like like I I'm even trying to make sure that I'm not being too boring describing what I'm describing because yeah. it's very. Well, that's hard why I brought to, time to man. Well, it's true though, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's one of those things that the, I don't think historians. That's one thing that shocked me coming from a non-academic background into a PhD. Mm-hmm. The amount of times that I see people standing up in front of an audience reading from an A4 page, literally just reading it out. And not engaging with the audience, yeah, at all, and it's it's accepted, completely accepted. In and academic. people are happy to listen to that. Yes. Sit down and they like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, and, geez, and that those, was a great old reading and, there and, from and that those, A4. And those very same people will come to life in the Q and A at the end of the lecture, ah, okay, because yeah. they know their topic so well. Of course, yeah. But when you put that into like the general public, if you still, I mean, if you see a guy standing there reading from a page, you're not going to stay there long enough to listen to the Q and A. No. So time team is great for that. You never get bored, even though they're doing the most mundane, boring stuff. Mundane, you know? boring stuff. And every time it's the same formula that works. You know, it's like robot wars. Trench one doesn't work. Dig trench two. You know, it's the same thing. <laughs> get the geofizz in there first. Or geojiz, as my brother calls it. Your brother calls geojiz? <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah, what, yeah, yeah. What, geojiz. <laughs> what would actual geojiz be? Snow? I don't know. I don't know. I have to come out of the earth. White <laughs> substance. Maybe it's just lava. Maybe the earth's geology yeah, is just, just lava. Call it lava. All right. Uh, move slightly on. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. So that's the that's the kind of the, the long and the short of it, as they say, for the PhD. Uh-huh. The sun is setting over the bay at the minute. I yeah. think we've talked for a couple hours at this stage, and it's tremendously, tremendously um, enjoyable. Yeah. Well, well, thanks so much, Eamon, for coming. Thank on. you, Eamon, for being here. Oh, absolutely, no bother, lads, and, and thanks very much for being so patient and listening to me rambling on. And, and look, anytime, I'm delighted to to see this thing off and rolling, and and delighted to be the guinea pig in the, the first the first one. Yeah, you're the first. Yeah. Thanks very much, lads. Absolutely, no Richie. See you later. Lavin. Yeah.